This is Project Inspire, a Haslam interview series created and produced by students in the Haslam College of Business at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and sponsored by Haslam's Office of Student Engagement. In this episode, we are joined by Shamik Konar. Mr. Konar currently works as the CEO of Pilot Company, the seventh largest privately held company in the United States. With an international education, a PhD in economics and finance, and a robust career touching on many facets of the energy industry, Mr. Konar uses his skill set to continually innovate and lead the energy industry as a whole. Welcome to the 14th episode of Project Inspire. My name is Veda, and today I have with me Mr. Shamit Konar. Mr. Konar, how are you doing today? Doing great. Awesome. Doing great. Well, if you're ready to go, I'll go ahead and kick things off with the first question. Absolutely. Cool. So I want to start back with your education and specifically relating that to the kind of global approach you had to education. So for your undergraduate degree, you went to St. Stephen's College in Delhi, and then for your PhD, Vanderbilt University here in Tennessee. So what were the biggest challenges you faced and the benefits that you gained from having an international education? Let me start with the challenges first, because to me, honestly, there really weren't any except the food. Uh, you know, I missed Indian food when I came here. I grew up in India. But outside of that, it was an absolutely awesome experience. But, you know, in terms of the benefits, from my perspective, we live in a very global society. I know COVID and what's happened in Russia has kind of taken us back a little bit. Um, but it is a global society. Um, you know, supply chains are global. Education is global. The labor force is global, right? Because people are moving across countries. Uh, money flows are global. So having that global perspective to me was actually very helpful in my life. Kind of viewing things through other people's eyes and other people's lenses, because then you get to understand how they think about problems and how they make decisions. So, you know, even through this recent experience with COVID, different countries responded very differently and it comes from their cultures and it comes from how they think about the world. And so, you know, for me, the benefit was just amazing. I got to come to the U.S., which is an absolutely amazing country to be in. And, uh, you know, the great thing about, about colleges and schools is you get to meet people from everywhere, right? Because you have so many international students. So you don't just get to see the world from a U.S. perspective, but you get to meet people from countries that you've never been to. So for me, the benefits were amazing because it just gave me a different perspective on life. Yeah, definitely. Relating more specifically to your career, how would you say that global perspective comes into play? You know, it's, it's interesting. In my career, I've actually had, I've been blessed to have a very interesting career. I've actually visited all seven continents. I've, uh, I've actually worked in six continents outside of uh, Antarctica. I've been to Antarctica, but I've worked everywhere. So having that global perspective, like when I was working in Australia or Indonesia or South Africa, um, really helped me connect with people and understand that, you know, people, while they're the same everywhere, they do think differently. They grow up differently. They have slightly different value systems. And you can't run businesses without without understanding that, without connecting with people. The other thing I would say is, you know, so I work at Pilot now, and Pilot is in North America. We're in the US and we're in Canada, so you could say that I'm not a global company anymore, but, you know, 
I'll give you an example. We do some work in the oil field and we supply natural gas in the oil field. And uh, so we use these generators there. But our generators were running behind through COVID because the doors that went on our generator sets were actually made from Chinese pig iron, which was processed in India. And we were running late because China had shut down. And I work for a US company, right? So it just gives you an example. Supply chains are global. Things work globally. So having that perspective and context has been very helpful. Yeah, definitely. And that's really cool to see that application more specifics, but kind of transitioning away from the global applications, you chose to pursue a PhD rather than a master's degree, which is more typical in fields of business like an MBA. Why did you choose to do this and what benefits did you get from your PhD? You know, if I did a master's, I'd have to start working sooner. If I did a PhD, <laughs> I could stay in school for longer. So, you know, it was just a, uh, no, uh, kidding, kidding aside, that, that did play into my thinking a little bit. I'm like, why do I need to work? I can just stay in school. Uh, I love teaching. So, um, you know, when I, when, I, when I came to graduate school, I love teaching and I love research. And, you know, people who work with me now still suffer because wherever I see a whiteboard, I'm naturally drawn to the whiteboard <laughs> and I start drawing things out. So, uh, so my initial goal was actually to, uh, to go teach and, uh, you know, go, go be in a university environment. And that's why I ended up doing a PhD as opposed to opposed to doing a master's because I really love research and teaching. Yeah, that's really cool. It's, I think it's a unique experience to have a PhD on industry. It, it is. It is. And it's been helpful in certain respects. And uh, in other respects, I don't tell people I have a PhD because they immediately are like, ah, you're going to say stuff that is going to be not relevant to business, so I'm not going to talk to you. So right. most of the time I hide. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> More specific to what you studied, how does economics and finance come into play into the energy industry? So, you know, two, two, two very important aspects of economics and finance, and, and especially doing a PhD, a, a PhD specializing in finance is basically math, right? So all you end up doing is mostly math, and you do, do a little bit of finance. And uh, one of the things I've seen is no matter what you do, I found maths to be very helpful because you're modeling, you're forecasting, you're always looking at numbers and math, math becomes uh, something that if you've learned math, you can apply it to just about anything. So, you know, when, when you think about the energy industry, I just view it as any other business, right? And you have two things you have to deal with. You have to deal with markets and economics does actually a great job training you on how markets work, right? Competitive markets, monopolistic markets, how pricing works, uh, and so on. And uh, finance does a great job in making you think about business and uh, you know uh, being profitable and how to run businesses. So to me, those were kind of generic skills. And the reason I really got involved in energy is uh, back in 1995, when I came out of graduate school, the US markets were actually deregulating for electricity. So you had to create a market structure because earlier it was all regulated, which meant that, you know, you produce the electricity, you got to charge a margin on it, and the customer was forced to pay whatever you, you were going to charge them. Well, in 1996, the U.S. decided that 1995-6 that we were going to deregulate these markets and make it competitive. So there was a marketplace and things would price competitively and you would, could buy electricity from whoever was the cheapest provider. And uh, 
it was a unique opportunity to use economics and design how these markets should work. And that's how I really kind of got involved in energy and my economics and finance degree actually came to, came to be very useful. Yeah, that's really exciting. You kind of jumped ahead. I was going to ask you what got you into the energy industry. Well, but... here you go. That's what got me into the energy <laughs> that's industry. That's good. Well, we'll revisit that a little bit later on. But I wanted Absolutely. to kind of jump and transition to leadership and management. So obviously, you've had lots of different opportunities and a multitude of different leadership and management roles. What of your leadership roles do you feel challenged you the most and why? This role, the CEO roles, definitely challenged me the most by a long shot. And, and I'd, I'd probably say this, there's three reasons why. First, you know, as you, as you get into these roles, you realize, and, and this is true for everybody, but we, we usually take time for granted. And in this role especially, how I allocate my time is the most difficult challenge because I have so many demands on my time and I have to decide what to spend time on to make myself the most effective. And that has been, compared to anything else I've done in this role, in that pilot, we've got, you know, 28 to 30,000 employees, depending on the season. We're in multiple different businesses across the country. I took over the role in the middle of COVID, which was interesting. So, you know, just what to focus on and how to allocate my time. If I could have 36 hours in a day, I would be much happier, I think, and less stressed. <laughs> but unfortunately, I don't. So. So that's been the most challenging, uh, uh, this has been the most challenging job and that has been the most challenging aspect of my job. The other thing, you know, I've learned, my role really is to do two things. One is to coach people and help people get better because when you're in big companies or running, uh, you know, big institutions, you actually can't do it all yourself. There's no chance, you know, when you start out in your career, you're like, I'll just muscle through it and I'll work harder and I'll, you know, do better. But I can't, it's too big, right? So, so part of my job is coaching, which is interesting but challenging because you're dealing with a lot of different people. But the other part of my job really is, you know, as a CEO, your job really becomes looking around corners and trying to understand what the future may hold and how you can best prepare your company for it. And, uh, you know, looking around corners in the middle of COVID, in the middle of a Russian war, in the middle of a potential recession has been stressful and difficult, right? Because we are, I went back and looked at, I think it was, it was back about 40 years ago that last time we had inflation anywhere in this range. And, you know, we haven't had unemployment levels and inflation at the current levels, I think ever. So when you're trying to look around corners and think about, hey, what might happen to us next year or five years from now, this is a pretty complicated time. So, so those would have been my, you know, if you ask me, what, why is this job difficult? I'd say allocating time is really difficult and kind of having the responsibility to be looking around corners and figuring out where you're going to go. Yeah, definitely. And I, I can absolutely see how the CEO role is completely its own beast and really challenging in its own way. And I do think it's cool how you have the opportunity to tie, like you said, you enjoyed teaching. Those kind of soft coaching skills with like the harder math schools. That's so right. I do that's think that's right. a pretty unique opportunity and interesting. But kind of jumping off of that, did you ever envision yourself becoming CEO of a company? And if so, what was that moment when you realized that? Absolutely not. In fact, 
when I was asked if I would want to apply for this job, I was like, are you sure? I come from the energy industry and just, just you know, as pilot, we do a number of different things. We sell food, we sell retail merchandise, we sell a lot of fuel, we, you know, provide showers for people, they do laundry, all of these things. And I, I spoke to, I, I spoke to my, my boss, uh, to, to Jimmy Haslam, and he's like, do you want to do this? And I said, look, I know nothing about selling hot dogs, and I only <laughs> eat hot dogs. Are you sure you want me to do this? And he decided it was a good idea, so here I am. So, so this was never my plan, but honestly, throughout my life, what's always worked very well for me is I've always just focused on learning, right? So is there a way for me to get better at doing whatever I'm doing and learning new things and becoming good at them? And the rest of my career and life's just happened. I mean, my, my strategy has really been, I'm intellectually curious, I love to learn. And I felt like, hey, if I kept learning, and doing what people ask me to do and try to do it better every day, it would work out. And so, unlike a lot of other people who have very specific goals saying, you know, I want to be the CEO of this or that, I actually did not come up like that. I just came up with intellectual curiosity, learning, and just trying to get better. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. And so, and similar to that approach of how you just love learning, transitioning more to a leadership capacity, how would you describe your leadership style? I'd probably say two things, two or maybe three things. First, I truly believe in collaboration. I believe in the power of teams. And I believe, you know, teams can achieve amazing things if they work together. And individuals have a hard time doing it. So, you know, my best example that I talk to our teams about is I view leadership like playing water polo as opposed to swimming in your lane, right? Where you just try to swim as fast, fast back and forth. It's a team sport. You got to know what other people are doing. You got to collaborate with people, coordinate with people, and I think you become better. So I'm a big believer in collaborative teams. Um, the second thing from a leadership style that's really important to me is humility. Um, again, I'm a big believer in I want the best ideas to come out from whoever they're going to come from. And it is my job to pick the best idea, not my idea. Right, because my idea may absolutely not be the best idea, and the team's going to win if we pick the best ideas. Right, and often, you know, as people get more senior in life, I mean, they keep thinking that I have to be the one who comes up with the idea and it has to be my way. I think you you end up being more successful if you can just, you know, put that away, listen to people, and just see what's the best way of doing something, and then just lean into it and go ahead and do it. So. I would say, you know, collaboration and teams are very important to my leadership style. I think humility humility is probably the next most important uh, for my leadership style. I, I'll do anything to make my team win, whether it's whether it's do an interview with you or whether it's uh, get a cup of coffee. So uh, yeah. that that I, and I have tremendous respect for people who do that. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I think leadership is something that people you really have the opportunity to make it your own. That's. Absolutely right. Which I, th I think it's super cool, but at the same time, I think it's an incredible opportunity to kind of learn from other people. So throughout your experiences in different management leadership roles, how have you kind of absorbed other leadership roles while staying unique to your own style? You know, it's a, it's a great point. And uh, I, I, I'd say, you know, I, I have been exposed to many different types of leadership, right? So very command and control, like 
do what I ask you to do, and when you're done with it, come back and talk to me. And I've lived through, I've lived through that. I've lived through, uh, you know, kind of very laissez-faire leadership, which is like, hey, let me give you the goal and go figure it out. Um, and you know, what I've learned through experiencing all of that, I found like when it's totally command and control, you're at the mercy of one person who better be really good, right? And better know what they're doing. And when it's completely relaxed from a leadership standpoint, you know, it becomes like sometimes unorganized chaos because everybody's just doing whatever. So, you know, having experienced both of those, I felt like the middle, the middle road to me was better where one, I definitely don't know the best way to do everything, right? So the, if I know everything, I don't need a team. I have a team to make me and all of us better. So, you know, I've tried to over the years find ways to leverage that, right? Which is, hey, get the best ideas from the team, but also give them some guidelines, right? Saying once we talk about it and we agree on what the best idea is, then we're much more directed, right? So we've all talked about it, we've argued, we've fought, we've agreed this is where we're going. Now we're gonna get behind it and go. So so that's kind of where I landed and it's generally worked quite well for me and it doesn't work well for everybody. Different people are different, but that's been my style and my approach. Okay. Thank you for that insight. I was especially curious about that question. So thank you for elaborating on it. I wanna kind of transition away from leadership now and go back to the energy industry, which we kind of jumped ahead to before, but some of our listeners may not know what exactly the energy industry is. So if you had to describe it, how would you describe the energy industry and how do you feel pilot fits in? Oh, it's a great question. So, you know, when, when I, when I, when I talk about the energy industry, I'm talking about anything that generates energy, right? So it could be, you know, fossil fuels that you burn. It could be renewable fuels like ethanol, biodiesel. It could be solar. It could be wind. It could be coal. So there are multiple sources of energy around the world and it powers everything around us, right? So, I mean, we we live in a world where we're very, very dependent on energy and we've got to find alternative cleaner sources of energy, but the electricity, the camera, the lights, everything works off of energy. And, uh, you know, even all the, all the things that we're sitting on, the clothes we wear, energy is kind of core to producing all of those things. So to me, it was a fascinating industry that almost is essential to everything we do elsewhere. Um, so, so, you know, that's how I would define energy, right? Production of energy, the movement of energy, the sale of energy. How, how pilots involved in energy is actually really cool. Until I came to pilot, I had no idea. And this is one of the reasons I came to pilot. I've been in the energy industry all my life, but here's some cool facts. Pilot sells about 14 billion gallons of fuel a year. And just to give you context, one out of every four molecules of diesel that's sold in the US or that's used in a car or a truck is sold by pilot. So pilot is absolutely an integral part of US logistics and moving things around. Um, you know, about 70, 75% of all goods in the US actually move on the road. They move on trucks. And, you know, so it's awesome for me when I think about it and say like, Okay, 25% of 75%, so around like, you know, 18% of everything that's moving in the U.S. is moving on 
a service that's being provided by pilots. So pilots a big part of the energy industry. We also uh, we run a lot of trucks ourselves. Here's an interesting uh, interesting fact, and we hire a lot of people from the logistics program here. Every 20 seconds, pilot unloads a big tanker of some fuel somewhere in the country. So, so you know, we're very involved in the movement of energy outside of just selling the energy. And then uh, we do some production as well. I mean, uh, we have an ethanol plant where we make ethanol. We uh, have some refining capacity capability where we, uh, you know, make uh, diesel and uh, and gasoline. So, so we're involved up and down the energy supply chain from selling fuel to the person who's driving the car or the truck to making fuel and transporting it everywhere it needs to go. So obviously, Pilot has changed a lot since its founding yes. by Jim Haslam, and as has the energy industry. And I think it's fitting because often you speak about innovation and change. Why are these so important to you? You know, to me, I have a firm personal belief that I try to get better every day at whatever it is I'm doing. And trying to get better always has to do with change and has to do with innovation, right? Because if you keep doing everything the way you used to do it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you're unlikely to improve much, right? So to me, innovation is about getting better and being focused on finding ways to achieve the same goals cheaper, faster, more efficiently, creating a better experience and so on. So innovation to me is about getting better and as long as uh, you want to get better and I'm a super competitive person, I want to get better every day at whatever I do, um, you know, innovation becomes a part of that, change becomes a part of that. Definitely. And more specifically, in a previous interview with Knox News, you said that as markets change and as opportunities change, we have to change or else we die, basically, was the quote. Which Maybe I that's a little really harsh, but yeah. I enjoyed that quote. <laughs> it's a little bit of paraphrase. Innovate or die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but while innovation is crucial to survival, obviously it doesn't come without risks. So how do you go about approaching risk whenever you're deciding to make an innovative decision? It's a great question. And, you know, it's one of the most uh, challenging parts of my job, right, is making that decision as to how much risk we take when we innovate and what the downside could be. But pretty much every good thing has, a, has some risk associated with it, right? I mean, very rarely do you end up in a situation where everything's just going to work out and there's no risk to it. Here's the way we look at risk at pilot. I would, I would categorize it in two ways. One is fail fast, and second is don't fail at scale, right? So let me talk about those two things. So fail fast to me is really saying, I'm gonna test this out. If it's not working, I'm gonna stop quickly. And the way to stop quickly is actually to be pretty thoughtful about when you're gonna innovate or try something, understanding what success looks like, right? So if you, if you have a good vision of what success looks like and you try it and it's been a couple of months and you're like, okay, this is what success looked like. This is where I am. I think I've failed. I need to stop, <laughs> right? And, and a key part of that is also to me, the humility is really important here is you can't get vetted to your idea, right? You test your idea and then you got to let the facts speak for themselves. 
and then be able to pivot away and say that, okay, that wasn't a good one. I'm going to work on the next one, right? So fail fast is really important and failing fast has got a lot to do with defining what success looks like and then always be testing yourself, right? The second thing is don't fail at scale, right? Um, so, you know, it's like when you when you play poker and you see people going all in and, uh, you know, you better really be sure when you're going all in. So for me, risk management is about testing, learning, and then once the test proves itself out and you feel good about it, then you go to speed to market and you lean in really quick, right? So it's a process of failing fast and not failing at scale. I think companies who do that well generally do a good job innovating. Sometimes, hey, you know, you could go in scale and not test it and get lucky and it works out. But, you know, that's a high risk reward strategy. Definitely. And I guess a more specific example of that is recently Pilot partnered with GM to build a coast-to-coast -coast EV network. And to me, that was a big example of weighing out innovation and risk because currently only about 1% of the cars on the road in America are electric. Absolutely. It is a risk. So what was... Yeah. <laughs> and are we going to fail at scale? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, here's, here's what we believe, um, uh, you know, kind of on that aspect. One, you know, we as a company, um, you know, believe that climate change is real and we need to do something about it. And, you know, I'll just digress for a second from your example. Um, you know, th this always, this always uh, kind of blows people's minds is every time a truck pulls into a pilot, they on average buy about 100 gallons of fuel. 100 gallons of fuel actually emits one ton of carbon dioxide. Right, and if you go through the chemistry, it is true, the math works. But, you know, when you think of 2,200 pounds of carbon dioxide coming out of the tailpipe of a truck every time they pull into a location, you're sitting there saying, wow, I need to do something to make a difference. And, you know, Pilot sells 13 to 14 billion gallons of fuel. So if you do the math, our customers emit 140 million tons of CO2. And that, just for perspective, is almost 8% of U.S. transportation sector CO2 emissions, right? So one, we feel like we need to do something about it. We need to make a difference. So that's, that's kind of the philosophical part of it. The very practical part of it is there are two pieces. One is, you know, we're in the customer service business, right? So if, if you're our customer, you have an electric car, you want to show up, we want to make sure that we have the ability to provide you the service. The, so, you know, we do have customers who have electric cars. You're right, only 1% of the cars in the U.S. are EVs, but they are part of our customer base. So, you know, we want to be able to uh, be there to provide them a service. The second thing, and we've done a lot of work on this, and I do believe this, that when you think about electrification of automobiles, that is more likely to happen a lot faster than electrification of trucks. And because trucks carry weight, batteries are heavy, there's always a trade-off because weight on the truck means money for the person who owns the truck. Whereas in the car, it's generally in the US, it's one person who's in the car, right? So weight doesn't matter, the experience is good. So we're like, okay, you know, cars are likely to electrify faster. So we are taking a risk, but we believe that is kind of on its way. The third thing is one of the biggest challenges for EV drivers is what's called range anxiety, right? You get into your EV, 
you've decided you're going to drive from Knoxville to Florida and you're like I've got 200 miles but I don't know unlike you know if you're driving on gas you can pretty much stop at every exit and there's a gas station out there you don't know if you're going to get charging and Pilot actually has this amazing network 800 locations in the US and I looked at I-10 between LA and Jacksonville and we have a travel center on average every 58 miles right so we actually have the ability to electrify the whole corridor and set it up in a way so that if you're driving from LA to Jacksonville on I-10, which is about 2,600 miles, right, we can provide you certainty that you will have a place to charge. So we felt like a combination of doing something about climate change, our customers wanting something, the fact that we actually have a network that can solve range anxiety, it made sense for us to be a market leader and go ahead and do it. That was a long answer, but we thought about this a lot before uh, before kind of making that decision. I mean, it was a huge decision, so I would assume a lot went into it. And I thought it's really cool how you were able to tie in the more social responsibility aspect in addition to like the innovation. It is right. I mean, uh, we 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 are leaving the planet for our children and for young people like you guys. So you know, it is our responsibility to do something. And we appreciate it. So, <laughs> well, that was the last question I had written for you. We like to end all of our interviews with what we call the Haslam series questions, which are four questions that we ask all of our guests. So if you're ready, I'll go ahead and hit me with those. Absolutely. Sounds good. So the first one of those is, what's something that you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? This is advice for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'll say it. I'll, I'll say it the way I tell other people is the older I got, the smarter my parents got. And what that means is, you know, there's benefit from experience, which my parents kept trying to tell me when I was 20. And I always felt like, yeah, that's your experience, but I'm different and my world is different. And, and I really wish I had listened more because, uh, you know, there are a lot of things in life which don't really change that much with times, right? Um, human behavior, just maturity adds, uh, and experience adds value. And when you're young, you always believe like, hey, I've got a different view, I'm a different person. But there is value to experience and kind of having the ability to listen. And, you know, because there's so many things now where I'm like, yeah, my dad said that about 27 years ago. I wish, uh, you know, my life would have been a lot easier if I had listened a little bit more. So listen to your parents is what I'm trying to, trying to say here. So I would say that would be my biggest, biggest learning. I wish, and honestly, I'm a complete failure. I try to tell my two kids that, hey, you should think about this. And uh, their response is the same, uh, same as mine was to my parents. So maybe these things never change. But, you know, I'm trying to tell, tell as many people as would listen to this podcast. Maybe there is some value to that. Hopefully. I mean, I definitely think it's important to balance learning things the hard way or figuring it out yourself and then taking the easy taking, take Taking some <laughs> advice. Yeah, exactly. You might be able to spend your time more productively if you don't always learn things the hard way. That's very true. <laughs> but the second question in the Haslam series is, what's a resource such as a book, article, or a habit even that you found to be particularly useful? You know, for me, it's a habit. Uh, for me... Uh, it really is. I, I work out pretty much every morning and uh, what I've found is it's very difficult to control what happens to you through the day. And uh, you know, but early in the morning when I work out, 
I can control my schedule and I can achieve something before my day goes out of control. And I'm sure it happens to you with school. You know, you go to a class, you forget about an assignment, the day goes out of control. So I always find like in the morning before my day goes out of control, if I can achieve something that I do control, it starts me off on the right foot. And also it gives me some time to think in the morning. It's my time. Uh, and it just sets me up much better for my day. So to me, that's that's been the habit I've stuck with, uh, gosh, since since I was in college. So, you know, I, and it's 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 always been something that uh, that's been my go to. It makes me feel good in the morning. I feel like, like I've achieved something and I can feel better about my day. Yeah, definitely. That was a good choice. I also enjoy having little part of my day that I can control so I can definitely relate to what you're saying there right. but jumping in the next question a little bit more open-ended what inspires you I'd say two things one is trying to make a difference trying to make a difference in people's lives we talked about you know climate change social aspect I love teaching um, so just trying to make a difference in everything you do today. I mean, I, I always uh, always find that inspiring. And the second thing is, you know, what I, I already spoke about a little bit is just trying to make yourself better, just being better every day a little bit, right? I mean, there's a great book by James Clear, which talks about if you could just get 1% better every day, think about compounding, how good you could be. But, you know, 1% doesn't seem like that much. But so just striving to be that little bit better every day doing things a little bit better every day, you know, thinking a little clearer every day. That's what that's what inspires me and keeps me going. Yeah, definitely. So last question, what's next? I don't know. Um, you know what? Like my answer to be, becoming a CEO, I actually, you know, some people plan out their lives very carefully. I actually don't. I just I just love learning, but if you ask me today what's next, there's two things I would love to be able to do. One is be part of the solution for climate change. And, you know, I think Pilot is an incredible platform for us to do that. And we are doing that in so many different ways. And I'm happy to actually, I think I'm, I'm doing a little TED talk here at UT about that. But I think that's a problem and we have the ability to solve it with good policy. And the second thing, which I'll I've always fantasized about it, and actually before coming to Pilot, that's what I was going to do, is go teach. I love teaching, so um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to give back. Definitely. That was all I had for you today. So that concludes the 14th episode of Project Inspire. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you and learn Well, thank you, you for having me. Uh, absolute pleasure. Awesome. Appreciate you. it. And good luck. And listen to your parents. <laughs> Will do. <laughs>